Would you please stand in the honor of the reading of God's word? Scripture reading today. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 42, where the Holy Scriptures read. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses it for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, we ask that we would understand this text clearly not just in our heads, but in our hearts, so that we would be forever changed by it, that our affections would grow for Christ, and that we would realize what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus. Father, there's many voices out there telling us what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus, and there are many false voices that are leading people astray. So we ask that that would not be the case today, and that we would understand what it means to be a disciple, and that you would give us the power to faithfully be one. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to generations who did remarkable things, there is one that stands out above all the rest. And it's got to be the generation that grew up during the Great Depression. Because they were such a remarkable generation that they've been called by many the greatest generation. Why were they so great? What put them above all the rest? Well, it's because they were willing to lay it all down, to put it all on the line when it mattered. They put down their, they set their family aside. They put their life at risk, their dreams and their ambitions. They set them aside. Why? In order to save the world. See, they realized that Hitler's Nazi Germany was poised to take over everything, the entire world, and lead humanity into an age of darkness never before seen. And so this generation did what they had to do. Realizing what was at risk, they banded together to do whatever was necessary to save the world from such unprecedented evil. Many have studied this generation in depth, and you want to know something? The interesting thing about them is that there was nothing that great about the greatest generation. 
There's nothing that stood out. They were average Joes. They were regular people. They weren't an elite group of people. They were ordinary, everyday people who strive together for an extraordinary accomplishment. And they did so by serving in whatever capacity that they could, no matter how small it was. See, the men signed up to be shipped overseas to fight in hand-to-hand combat, leaving their friends, family, wives, and children behind in order to risk their lives for the war effort. But the women didn't sit around idly by, stressed out either. They stepped up to fill the void that was left in the factories. And they did so so that the war effort could continue to be supplied with parts, weapons, and supplies that were vitally needed. And still, some women signed up to be nurses who saw combat as they were bombed over and over, and many of them died for their ambition. And so working together, this very ordinary generation became the greatest of generations who sacrificed their families, they sacrificed their lives, and their ambitions to save the world. Church, in Matthew chapter 10, we read of the greatest generation of all Christians. Without a doubt, this is them. The greatest generation of the church, which banded together to save the world, but in a different way, in an infinitely more important way. See, an evil empire had begun to conquer the world. It had taken over, it had spread throughout everything, and it was their task to save the world from it. Not with swords, not with chariots, but with a message from heaven that could literally transform hearts spiritually so that evil could finally be defeated once and for all. And just like the greatest generation, the church's greatest generation accomplished their mission at the cost of their family, their lives, and their dreams. And they did so in the face of terrifying hostility because they understood the importance of their mission. When it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, we are not signing up for our best life now. We're not. When it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, we are not signing up for God to give us all the blessings we just haven't been able to get ourselves. We're not signing up to make all of our dreams come true. In fact, though Jesus is the Prince of Peace, we aren't even signing up for peace. Not yet. For as Jesus says, as we just read in verse 34, he has not come to bring peace, but a sword. And so to be a disciple of Jesus means that you are not signing up for peace, but you're signing up for conflict. You're signing up for uncomfortableness. You're signing up for hostility. And so turning to our passage this morning, we're going to see the three kinds of hostility that we sign up for when we come to Jesus to be his disciple. And here they are. To be a disciple of Jesus is to volunteer for three kinds of hostility. Family hostility, life hostility, and world hostility. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to begin in verse 34 here. I'll read it again. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father more, father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Right now, we live in an age of rampant deconversion stories seemingly popping up almost every other day on social media. Christians who were once even pastors, or often is the case, worship leaders in popular Christian bands, people who once led the church, led Christians in worship, are now saying they don't even believe in the God that they wrote those songs for. There's a rampant deconstruction going on right now. And do you know one of the biggest reasons why they often give for why they are leaving Christianity and forgetting their faith? It's because instead of finding peace, they found hostility. That's really what it is. But what does Jesus here tell us about that? He says he's not offering peace. He's offering hostility. In verse 34, Jesus says he has not come to bring peace but a sword. So what is he talking about here? Is he saying that there should be some sort of Christian crusades where we get our swords and we just go start slaying all the infidels? Is that what he's talking about? No, obviously not. As he said in Matthew chapter 5, his disciples would be known for being peacemakers. So what does he mean by a sword? Well, he means this. When Jesus is talking about the sword in this context, he's not talking about his followers picking up the sword and wielding it for destructive purposes to attack and conquer. No, he's talking about his followers being attacked and conquered by the sword. And so the sword here stands as an image for destructive hostility against Jesus' disciples. So in this passage, Jesus is essentially saying that if you're going to follow him, if you're going to be his disciple, you better be ready for conflict. You better be ready for hostility. Because if you're not, when it comes, you're going to be like all these deconstruction people who are like, well, what's going on here? I thought there would be peace. doesn't seem like there's peace. You won't be expecting the right thing. This is the problem that has led so many to leave the Christian faith. And the problem is this, a lot of professing Christians are not telling the truth. They're not preaching the truth. They're not teaching the truth. They're misrepresenting what Jesus says it means to be a disciple. They don't tell them what they're really signing up for when it comes to following Jesus. What are they often told? They are told that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. They are told that God loves them, and if they would just say yes to Jesus, then they continue on in their life, but find blessing and have fire insurance from the wrath of God that is to come. They are told that God helps those who what? Help themselves, right? One of the most unbiblical statements I think I've ever heard. They are told that God helps those who help themselves, so if they go to church, if they read their Bibles, if they pray, then God will protect them from Satan's darts and Satan's arrows. They won't have suffering, persecution, or hostility. Not really, maybe some, but not they'll be saved from so much that they would have had. See, and this is a big problem. Why? Because none of that is true. It's not. It's not true. If the American church is guilty of anything, I think it's guilty of a bait and switch. Here's an example of this. Youth ministries that dress Christ up with entertainment, with fun, instead of discipleship, instead of serious study of God's word. And the idea is if we can show them how fun Jesus is, then they'll see how much they want to follow Jesus and they'll come to love him. But then what happens? They turn 18, they leave home, and they find out that they were lied to. 
Maybe they find out that the message of the Bible doesn't actually match the message that their youth pastor told them. Or maybe their experience of suffering and hardship doesn't match what they were told about God having a wonderful plan for them and he'd make all their dreams come true. Whatever it is, you get the idea. They're the victim of a bait and switch. They signed up to follow a Jesus who wasn't the real Jesus. We live in a culture with countless voices telling us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace who wants to make our growing pains better. Spiritual Tylenol is kind of what it is. You know what? Back when Jesus showed up as the Messiah, the Jewish people thought the exact same way, and that's why they rejected him. See, they thought the Messiah would bring them political peace, wealth, prosperity. But instead, what did the Messiah actually bring? He offered them hostility. He offered them strife. He offered them suffering. And when they found that out, they wanted nothing to do with this Messiah, did they? Is it any different today? Now, don't get me wrong here. Jesus absolutely is the Prince of Peace. There's no questions about that. He is the Prince of Peace. But how does the Prince of Peace usher in his kingdom? Through hostility. It's hostility. Why? Because his coming, what he stands for, what he came to do was so offensive to the human heart that it would cause father to be against son, mother against daughter, sibling against sibling, families. The most intimate of relationship is going to be ripped apart because of what he was coming to do. Those who follow after Jesus often find that the member of their, members of their own household have become their enemies out of their hatred for Christ. And this shouldn't have been a shock, for the prophet Micah warned about this. Here's what Micah said back in Micah 7, 6 through 7. He said, For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against the mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are men of his own house. And the context here for Micah chapter 7 has to do with the Messiah and what would happen when he came. They should have known this. They should have realized that that was a part of the Messiah's coming. Now, here's the question. Why does allegiance to Jesus rip families apart? Why is Jesus saying that that's going to happen? Well, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, verse 22 answers that question. And verse 22 says, you will be hated by all for my namesake. The natural state of humanity, then, isn't love towards God. It's not. It may be a God, not of the Bible, a God that we set up in our own image, like like this idea of a God who just loves everybody, who just kind of winks at sin. Everybody's okay with that. But the God who says, I will by no means spare the guilty, people don't like that God. People don't want anything to do with the God who comes along and says, I am so intimately concerned about everything in my creation, I care about every molecule. I care about what happens in your house. I care about what happens in the bedrooms of these people. I care about what happens with fathers and sons and children and the way you talk. In fact, every single idle word will be taken into account on the day of judgment, as Jesus says. People don't like that kind of God, do they? And so Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my namesake. No, the natural state of humanity is not love towards God. It's not even indifference towards him, the Bible tells us it's hatred towards him. And this hatred manifests itself in open rebellion and hostility towards God and the people of God. 
Matthew 11.10 says this, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. To follow Jesus means to embrace being hated. Even if that means being hated by your own family, the ones who love you the most in this world. It means to embrace hostility. And as Jesus tells us, he says, you know what, if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to do that, then, verse 37, what does Jesus say? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What does that mean when he says, is not worthy of me? What's he talking about there? The context here is clear. He means unworthy of being his disciple or his follower, which means unworthy of sharing in his kingdom, which means not worthy of belonging to him and therefore consequently not belonging to him. You see the, you see the line of reasoning here? That's what, he's, that's what he's saying. All who love mother and father more than Jesus are not worthy of Jesus they cannot be his disciple. But now, isn't that a little bit harsh? Like, come on, like, let's lighten up here. This, this, is, this is heavy stuff. Is that a little bit unrealistic for Jesus to expect that from his disciples? I mean, you look at all the rabbis. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. No one expected anything like that of their disciples. So why did Jesus? Now, for a Jewish person, honoring their mother and father was a very, very solemn and important thing. I mean, back then, you could be stoned for it in the Old Testament if you didn't honor your parents. Listen up, children. It was a serious thing. In fact, it's the fifth of the Ten Commandments, to honor your mother and your father. And so when Jesus came along and called for this, do you see what he's actually getting at? He's saying, yes, I know the Ten Commandments. I know what they say. And while you absolutely should follow the fifth commandment, you shouldn't follow the fifth commandment over the first commandment. What's the first commandment? No other gods before me. Has to do with honoring God. That's the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And so by calling for this kind of devotion, Jesus is actually making a claim to deity here. He's saying, you need to love me and follow me more than your mother and father, which you are commanded to honor. He's claiming to be God. And when it comes to honoring parents... Yes, we should do that, but not at the expense of honoring God. For it is God that we are called to love with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, not our parents. And anything less of that with God is idolatry. Luke 14, 26, Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brother, and sisters, yes, and even his own life. Man, this fits right with this text. He cannot what? He cannot be my disciple. What's well, it pretty straightforward there. Now, what's he saying? Well, he's not saying just break the fifth commandment and just dishonor your parents and treat them like garbage. No. He's using hyperbolic language here to point out that our love for him, our love for him, who is God, must be so great that by comparison to our love for family, it's actually hatred. It's pretty extreme, right? Like, he's saying you must love God so much that it, every, every other kind of love doesn't even come close to that. 
And this is something that only God could claim. For it is God and God alone who deserves to occupy the center of our affections. Not hobbies, not work, not family. God. It is God and God alone who deserves our love, our worship, our praise, and our devotion. Now, many of you, we have talked, and I know that you have division in your families because of your obedience to Christ. And so as we approach this passage, it hits close to home for you, I'm sure, especially as we approach this holiday season. But as I trust you have come to know, while there is still sadness, what overshadows that sadness? Joy, right? Joy, because to follow Christ is absolutely worth it, even if it results in your family hating you. To exchange the love of our family for the love of God and his family, which includes our adopted brothers and sisters in Christ, is so much more infinitely better and worth it in the end. Yes, it still hurts, but it is absolutely infinitely better. In fact, not only is it worth losing the love of our family members, it's worth losing, as this text goes on to point out, our very lives, which leads us to our next point. So to be a disciple of Jesus is to volunteer not only for family hostility, but for hostility that relates to our very life. Look at verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, Jesus puts conditions here, and the condition he puts there is what? On being worthy of him. And that condition is taking up your cross and following him. What does that mean to take up your cross? Well, it's not dealing with your boss at work. It's not that old car you drive. That's not your cross. It's not your personal problems either. What is, it, what is the cross? What's it talking about? The cross here is self-denial. That's what Jesus is referring to. It's embracing the suffering that he's talking about, the hostility. And in order to do that, you have to practice self-denial. You absolutely do. You have to die to self. See, you have all these instincts, you have all these desires, all these affections for the things of this world around us, and that includes our mother and father, that includes our family, that includes lots of things that we all really enjoy. And all of those things, if we love those more than Christ, makes us unworthy of Christ, is what Jesus is saying. And so he says, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of me. And so that means self-denial. It means dying to self. You know that every single person on the planet instinctively tries to find life in death. Every single person who's born into this world tries to find life in death. It works like this. Everyone is living for something. It could be your job, your career. It could be your spouse, a romantic relationship. Maybe it's your kids, whatever. The point is... Everybody has something that occupies the center of their heart that says, if I have that, then life is good. But if I don't have that, life is miserable. And the point is, whatever that that is, that's your true God. And Jesus is saying, unless I get that spot, don't come to me and act like you're my disciple. For to be my disciple means to love 
me more than mother and father. It means to love me more than whatever thing used to sit in that spot. Uh, One guy talks about it being a God-shaped hole in our heart, and we all try to fill it with things. Only God can fill that hole. When we try to run our hearts off of things of this world instead of the creator, that's a lot like trying to run a diesel engine off of normal gas, which I believe you cannot do. I don't know a lot about cars, but I'm pretty sure you can't do that very well. What then fuels our souls? It's God, without a doubt. That is what we were made for. And so to try to make, it, make the human heart run off of something else, it's not going to work. It's going to be a failed project. And this isn't just cliche stuff ever. It's absolutely true. Think about it. What is the source and standard of beauty and goodness? Talk to me, church. What is it? Who is it? God. And now think about it. God made everything. And so everything in this world, even though it does have beauty and a sin-fallen creation, everything else in this world is but a minor reflection of the source of true beauty and goodness. Just a tiny little glimpse is what it is. So when an artist tries to find meaning and satisfaction in art instead of the God of art who made it, of whom all beauty points to, they're always going to come up feeling empty because the beauty of this world is but a dim, broken reflection of the beauty of God. Does that make sense? Now think about love. What is the source of perfect love? God, right? And every other love we find is a dim reflection of that love. And so here's what happens. People get a small taste of that, whether that's with their children, you know, that loving relationship you have there or with a spouse, Okay, they get a small taste of that love in human relationships, but it never lives up to the real thing. It can't live up to the real thing. See, an infinite God of love, who God who is love, I'm sorry, but as much as my wife is great, she can't compare with a God of love. As much as I try to be great, I can't compare with a God of love. And so what's going to constantly happen is if when I look to these dim reflections that the true source is God, I'm going to be constantly like just disheartened. And be like, well, this is kind of a letdown. This wasn't, I thought this was going to be better than this. I thought this would satisfy that God-shaped hole in my heart, but it doesn't. It can't. It never lives up to the real thing. And what inevitably happens is people go around trying to run their human heart off of non-God-related things, things of this world, and they damage whatever that thing is. You see this all the time as a pastor with marriages. People are trying to make that person their Christ figure in their life, and they're destroying their relationship from it. Mothers will do this with sons and daughters. They will want little Johnny to grow up to be just the perfect straight-A student, right? The honors child who gets valedictorian or whatever, and they crush their relationship with their child because they're making their child fill the God-shaped hole in their heart, and it cannot work. The world we live in is decaying and dying. And so by trying to find life's meaning and happiness in dying things, stuff of this world, that's looking for life and death. It's to look for life and death. And the point here is, everybody has something that they're looking towards in their life to give them life, to give them meaning, to give them purpose, to give them happiness. And Jesus says this, here's his point. Until that thing is him, it's never going to be enough. So how then do you know if you've truly found it? If, how do you know if Jesus is truly that for you? 
at verse 38 again. Jesus tells us, we know if Jesus is that for us because we gladly pick up our cross of self-denial in order to follow and gain Christ. Here's what Paul says about this. But whatever gain I had, whatever things I had, right, whatever gain, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Similarly, in Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, before we go on, I need to correct something here. Some people will say, looking at this passage, that what Jesus is talking about here is actually a second class of Christians kind of like super Christians. Like you've got Christians and then you've got people who really want to be a disciple. It's like the Navy SEALs of the church. That is absolutely fundamentally wrong. It's not even close to right, all right? For to be a Christian is to be a disciple. I have a really hard time. There's not a lot of commentators who take that position, but when they do, I'm just like, "Ah," drives me nuts because I'm like, this is not right. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, And this is over and over throughout Matthew. And well, don't get me wrong. There are things, as we talked about last week and the week before, that apply only to the 12 disciples, to the 72 that got sent out. There are, right? Like, I can't raise the dead. Uh, I can't heal the sick with my spiritual abilities that I've been given. I I can pray for people who are sick, but I don't have the same powers they had at that point. And so there is differences that apply to them, that apply to me, that will apply to tribulation saints. We already talked about that. Let's leave it alone. But you get the idea. The point is Matthew didn't write all of this stuff down just for the 12, just for the 72. And it was like, well, now we got to look back and read history. No, there's application here for us. We are all disciples of Jesus. And so this applies. There's things here that apply to all disciples at all times. And so make no mistake. To be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. And to not be a disciple is, not, is to not be a Christian. Consequently, this means that unless we are willing to take up the cross of self-denial, which, I mean, part of the gospel's repentance, right? It is. It's repenting of our sins. It's turning from our sins to Christ. That's, a self, and that's an act of self-denial. We all intuitively in our flesh like sin, And so when we turn to Christ, we're repenting of what we like, which is sin, and wanting to like Christ and follow after Christ. And so unless we are willing to take up our our cross of self-denial and follow Jesus, the text is clear. We cannot be his disciple. We are not worthy of it. When Jesus spoke about carrying our cross, he was referring to crucifixion. And keep in mind, like we're looking back at this thousands of years later, knowing what Christ would go through. They didn't have that in mind at all. They were thinking of Roman crucifixions because the crucifixion was Rome's favorite form of execution. And not only was it a brutal way to die, but it was a very embarrassing and very shameful way to die. And so to have a member of your family crucified brought a stigma of social disgrace upon your entire family. It brought shame. 
And that shame began not when that person was merely hung upon the cross, but it began before that when they would pick up their cross because the Romans would force them to carry the cross all the way up to the hill where they would be crucified. And on the way, the crowds would mock them. They would ridicule them. And the family members would be standing by in shame. So do you see what Jesus is saying now? He's saying, unless you are willing to suffer public disgrace, unless you are willing to suffer rejection, whether that be from, even from your family, unless you are willing to suffer persecution to the point of even death, you cannot be his disciple. This is why Jesus warns people who might follow him that they must, must count the cost. Remember back at a chapter ago, we saw the man who said, hey, Jesus, I want, I want to follow you and be my disciple, be your disciple, but I got to go take care of some stuff first. This is like, sayonara. You're not worthy. Here's what he says in Luke 14, 27 through 33. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You don't hear this message preached very often because it's not a very positive, encouraging message, is it? This is hard stuff. But this is what Jesus calls his disciples to do. You see now why Jesus said that the way is narrow and hard that leads to eternal life, and there are few who find it. He says that because it's hard. He says that because it's narrow. And he says that because there are few who find it. Why is it so hard? Why is Jesus so hardcore with his demands here for his disciples? Does he realize that he's demanding the impossible? Like, who can do this? Why does he demand the impossible? He demands the impossible because that's the point. When Jesus says in verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, he's not telling us that if we simply die for his namesake, then we go to heaven, right? Like, there's lots of Muslims who believe that. If they die a martyr's death, they go boom right to heaven, and they've got all this just wonderful bliss, whatever. That's works-based salvation. We don't believe in that as Christians. And so we know that he's, that's not his point because nobody, no matter how great they are, can earn their salvation. Right, church? No one. So what's his point? It doesn't matter how much you hate your family. It doesn't matter how much you're willing to pick up your cross. It doesn't matter even if you're willing to die for Jesus. None of those things can save you. There's only one thing that's powerful enough to save us. And what is that? It's not me taking up my cross. It's him who took up the cross. And we have to remember that when we approach this to be a disciple of Jesus. See, at the time Jesus spoke this, no one there knew what lay in store for him. 
And what lay in store for Jesus was literally what he spoke of. It was the cross. It was death. It was shame. It was rejection. Right now, we are in the middle of our Advent season, and we're celebrating the reason why Jesus was born into this world. And if we aren't careful, we can quickly and easily forget the true reason of Christmas. And the reason for Christmas is that light came into the darkness. Isaiah 9, verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Why was Jesus born into our world? Was it to convince people to love God more than their parents? Just do that and everything will be better. The darkness will be gone. Was it to convince people to practice self-denial and live for God above all things and to love him more than everything? Do that, world, and the darkness will be gone. No. For if that's all Jesus came to teach and do, that's like telling fish to learn to fly. They can't. Jesus came into our world to be the light and life of men. He came into our world as light to overcome the darkness, to do what none of us ever could do, no matter how much we loved God more than our family, no matter how much we pick up our cross and follow after God and love him above all things. Even if we're willing to lay down our life, it would not be enough to overcome the darkness that is in each and every human heart. And so Jesus came as light into the darkness. And because he did this, and only because he did this, can any of us here even hope to do what Jesus is calling his disciples to do? You see why, if we don't have the power of the cross when we approach this text, this is an impossible task. The power of the cross at work in the human heart is the only thing that enables a sinner like me and like you to love God so much that we will denounce our family if that's what it takes. It's the only thing powerful enough to make so I can willingly pick up my cross even to the point of excruciating death for the sake of Jesus. Why then do I denounce my family and follow Christ if that's what it takes to be his disciple? Because Christ was denounced for me. Why do I deny myself and pick up my cross and follow Jesus? Because Jesus denied himself and literally picked up the cross that I could never carry to suffer and die so that I might live. And so here's, here's the thing. Don't miss this. In the face of such love, in the face of such beauty, in the face of such wonder and care, how can I not love the one who gave up everything to love me? You see how that's the fuel that changes our dark, twisted hearts into being able to actually love God as we ought? We're not talking about rigid legalism here. We are talking about a heart that has been awakened by the power of God through the gospel so that it can finally love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. So much so that even if my family is going to disown me, I say I will follow God rather than men. Even if they come to nail me to a cross, I will say, I will live for Christ. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And that only happens when your heart has been changed by the power of the gospel. When our heart has been supernaturally awakened by the presence of the risen Christ, how can we not give up everything for him who gave up everything for us? It's not even a question at that point. 
When we come to see the risen Christ with our new spiritual eyes, we've seen true beauty. We've seen true glory. And everything in this world at that point is a dim, horrible reflection of what that true beauty is. We've finally seen true love, true glorious wonder. And when a person sees that, it will gladly trade the piddly things of this world for the eternal world to come. We will gladly exchange death for life, even if that means losing our life. And we do so not because of some moralistic, legalistic self-will that we've mustered up in ourselves. No, that's an impossible task. We do so because the power of the gospel, which has changed our hearts to stop treasuring worthless things of this world and to instead value and treasure Christ. He is our ultimate reward, which leads us to our final point. To be a disciple of Jesus is to volunteer for three kinds of hostilities, family, life, and third, the world. If we aren't careful, I really wish we had another hour for this last point. If we aren't careful, we can really confuse ourselves with these last few verses, and we only get to do a 10,000 flyby, so we're going to be careful. What's all this stuff about a cup of water? What's all this stuff about a prophet's reward? Well, we don't have time. Anyway, you don't need to know all that to understand the main point here. Here's the main point. Remember in this context, Jesus is sending his disciples out as sheep among wolves. Okay? He's sending them out to preach the message of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message. And what he's basically saying is this. Whoever receives them receives Christ, who is receiving the Father who sent him. All right? And whoever rejects them is rejecting Christ, who has come from the Father. And so by rejecting them, they're rejecting Christ, who is rejecting God, and they're rejecting salvation. That's, the, that's what he's saying in this passage. That's the flow of logic here. And so even if you lose your family, even if you are persecuted and martyred, even if you lose it all, you can have joy because as these verses talk about, we have an eternal reward that can never be taken from us. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 5. Here's what it says. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He talks about little ones here. He talks about these great prophets. He talks about these righteous men. And then he talks about little ones. But you want to know what? Whether you're a great prophet, whether you're a righteous man or you're a little one, guess what you actually are? You're a little one. That's really what you are. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's to recognize how small you are in comparison to Christ. It's to recognize that Christ is great. If you would be great, you must be weak, right? He who would rule must serve. It's the great reversal. And so all of us are little ones before God, and praise God we are. So from the greatest to the least of us, God will reward all of his little ones. Here's the reality. Some Christians are more littler than others, right? You know who you are. I'm just kidding. But you know what I mean, right? Like that's just the reality, right? And we are all little. Don't get me wrong. But some Christians are more littler than others because it's a growing process. That's a rabbit trail. But you get the idea. So 
the point here he's being made is even if you're one of those little ones who just gives a couple of water to a prophet, you're going to receive a prophet's reward. Isn't that remarkable? Like, and we do have time for this. Back then, what would happen was it was a sign of hospitality. When somebody came to your house, you would just give them water, right? Like, it's just the way it is. Like, in our culture, we're like, hey, can we take your coat? And we, you know, that sort of thing. Back then, it was give them a cup of water. And nobody thought anything of it. It was like, yeah, you better do that. Otherwise, you're just like the worst host ever, and you bring shame upon your family. And so here what Jesus is saying, even if you do the most basic act of hospitality and give a cup of water, you're going to receive a prophet's reward for that. That's remarkable. We don't deserve that, do we? No, but that's how gracious our God is. And as verse 42 says, not a single one of us by any means will lose our reward even if a hostile world tries to take it from us by taking our life. Our reward is eternal. There is an everlasting reward. It is everlasting peace with the Prince of Peace who will one day very soon return to set up his everlasting kingdom of peace. We're going to read Revelation 21 for a minute. Here's what this is going to look like. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. And keep in mind, church, let me pause. Many of these people at this point will have died for their faith, but death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The Prince of Peace has already come, and behold, he is about to come again so very soon to finally bring peace. And so until he does, may we little ones continue striving to bear our cross of self-denial, not so that we might be accepted by him, but because we've already been accepted by him. So may we bear our cross of self-denial as we follow after Christ, endeavoring to bring his saving message to a dark world that desperately needs the light of the gospel. That's what this is about. And so by his power, by his power alone, can we very ordinary people accomplish something extraordinary. And how? Through Christ, the light of the world who comes into the darkness to save even the darkness of men's hearts. May we as a church faithfully bring this message, even if it means losing our close family members, even if it means losing our lives. Because the life to come overshadows this so much more than we can possibly dare hope. 
Father, I thank you for this text. Boy, do we need more time in this today, Lord, but we ask that you would help us to understand this, that you would work through the foolishness of preaching. And so, Father, we ask that this would not be received as a legalistic, do more, try harder message, but it would be seen in a way that gives glory to Christ who has done what we could never do, who has accomplished what we could never accomplished. And so only out of that understanding, I ask that your people here would then examine themselves and see if they are living for family above you, if they are loving the world above you, if they are loving their very lives above you. For to do so is the sign of somebody who is not a true disciple. Somebody who has been deluded into thinking that they are right with God when they are actually not. So I pray for that person, Lord, that they would remember the gospel. That that is the only thing that can change their sin-darkened heart. To love as it ought. Which involves loving you first and foremost, above all things. Help us as a church to reach out to this dark world. Help us to be salt and light. Help our affections to be for you, not the world, the flesh, or our family. I want to pray specifically for our new door-to-door ministry, Lord. I just ask that you would bring us boots that would work diligently and labor in this especially important area. The harvest is plentiful, but the labor are few. So we pray, Lord, that you would send laborers into the harvest. Help us as we minister to those outside of our church, Lord, but we also ask that you would help us to not forget to minister to those within our church. Help us to preserve the unity that you've given us. Help us not to be divisive. Help us not to become a church that is so theologically rigid that we just sit around and argue about genealogies and pointless things that we've been told not to argue about. Help us, Lord, to have our hearts fueled by the affection, our affection for Christ. Help our first love not to go cold like the church of Ephesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.